Hey listeners, one of our goals of this podcast is to build a vibrant community around the business of wine. We've been delivering compelling and educational content for two years. We have really appreciated the outreach and engagement from you, our dear listeners, and a number of you have asked how you can help support the show. We love making the show and keeping the quality high, so we decided to launch a Patreon account where you can get access to our full library of episodes with more benefits to come. We've set the contribution to $5 a month to encourage as many people as possible to participate. Go to patreon.com slash xchateau to sign up. We'll put a link in our show notes and on xchateau.com, and we'll be announcing new patrons with each episode. Hey listeners, we're doing another library release, Defining Natural Wine, which was our original episode two of X Chateau. This has been an ongoing trend and topic that has crisscrossed many of our interviews on X Chateau. The natural wine movement got a formal designation in March of 2020. It specifies a set of vineyard and winery practices in order to qualify for the designation. We discuss the potential challenges of implementing the designation and the potential impacts to producers, retailers, and consumers. This episode originally aired in May of 2020. To access the rest of our library, become a Patreon supporter, as we'll soon be making many of our back episodes only available to our Patreon supporters. We thank you for all your continued support and hope you enjoy this library release. I wanted to give a shout out to a few recent patrons who joined supporting the show, and I want to thank them personally. First off, Andy W., who is someone who I've got to know over Instagram and personally enjoy a glass of wine with or two. Also, we have Ryan K. and Michael F. I want to thank you all for your support. It's greatly appreciated, and it will help us to continue to make great business content for you all. Much appreciated. Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights with your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of X Chateau. I'm your host, Robert Vernick. And co host, Peter Young. And today we're talking about the new definition of natural wine. And the reason we're talking about this is because recently the French appellation system has rolled out a new designation, Vin Method Nature. And what does this mean? Well, this means that wines with this designation are organically farmed, hand harvested, and vinified only with indigenous yeast. More importantly, it also means that there was no inputs added to the wine and no modification. This means that they're not doing anything brutal like reverse osmosis or heavy filtration or flash pasteurizations. And then they're not going to add sulfur into the wine before bottling. Now, there's two designations technically. One is going to be with no additional sulfites, and the other one is going to be with up to 30 milligrams per liter. And so the consumers will be able to see if there was any or a little bit of sulfur added. In the grand scheme of things, 30 milligrams per liter is quite small. So Peter, what do you think about this definition for natural wine? Well, it's a lot different from what people were calling quote-unquote natural before. Before, there was no strict definition. And I think this is a more limiting, tighter definition than there was before. Because in the past, or currently, when people say it's a natural wine, it could mean a lot of things. It could mean that it's an organically farmed wine, a biodynamically farmed wine. In general, it tended to mean there was minimal intervention, but that could mean low intervention, there's some sulfur used, no sulfur used. It could mean there's some level of filtration, possibly, or a lot of other things that are just, they weren't defined because there was no definition. And that's been something that has been growing a lot. So it's under this banner of there's less 
intervention than whatever is considered quote unquote conventional before the normal way of doing things. And that's been a growing movement. We've seen a rise of natural wine bars and restaurant lists that have all natural wine, retail stores with whole sections for natural wines, and even events and wine fairs that are completely catered to natural wines. And there's even a you know good book, I think it's called Natural Wine from Isabel Legaron, MW. So, I mean, it's clearly a movement. I mean, people are buying into natural wine. I mean, there's a big delta between what this definition is and what conventional wine is. And, I, and you hope there's a spectrum all on the way, but there's a lot of producers that are already doing organic farming, sustainable farming, biodynamic farming. How does this really set them apart for a producer? That's a good question. You know, I think a lot of the producers, especially so if they're not certified, whether it's organic or biodynamic from a viticulture perspective, being certified and needing to be certified to have this designation would make them unable to be flexible if something happens, if there's, you know, a human event, there's a mold risk or something is happening out in the vineyard that they need to then go make an application that's non-organic or, or something like that. Then they have more risk that they can't do that in the vineyard. And then in the winery, there may be more risk that they can't correct for any issues that happen with the wines. If the wines start to go off in any which way, there's you know different techniques people use to correct their wines. And if they can't do that, then they won't be able to do that. This seems really important given the fact that we're in a period of global warming. Well, global warming is happening and not in a period of it. And things are changing. And that doesn't just mean that things are hot and riper and things. It means that there's hailstorms and that there's frost really late in the spring season that are causing risk to vintages. And being able to course correct is extremely important for people as they're going through this turbulent time in viticulture. Yeah, it is both viticulture, we have a lot more extreme weather events with global warming and then just bigger or more precise technology in the winery that is taking place and that we all need to address. One of the interesting things that is in there is the hand harvesting requirement. For a lot of people, labor may be very tough to get. I think about Australia or New Zealand where they're an isolated country, labor is very expensive, hard to get cheap labor in. So they're very reliant on mechanization and machine harvesting. And in other places, machine harvesting just makes a lot of sense. And sometimes you get higher quality of wine because it goes through really quick. You can pick it when you want to. You're not you know, waiting for it to be cooler or you can just take it real quick. And some of the machines now are so precise, they can even sort rotted fruit or other things that could create issues with the wine, mold and other things that create issues with the wine in the vineyard and just get it out there. So not having some of those tools at your disposal may make it tougher to improve quality, which especially for fine wines and wineries that are trying to make the best wines in the world, their number one mantra is quality first. What I think is interesting, taking a region like Champagne, for example, or Burgundy, let's use Champagne first. So if we look at Champagne, they have the rules to be able to do hand harvesting, which is you know a requirement of the appellation. But the native yeast fermentation, although even with grower champagnes, even though they may do that for the base wine, the secondary fermentation for the most part is not a native yeast fermentation. It's just the process is, it's a wine of process. And that is something that you do not want to leave up for risk. You want to make sure that you get all that sugar fermented into CO2 and that you get the right end product. And that, that seems 
there will be very difficult for a champagne house or a grower champagne to receive this certification. Yeah, although I think the grower champagne, people would disagree in terms of that it's a wine of process and they're trying to make it more about terroir and their vineyards and all that. And I think both are true, right? What's in the base wine matters a lot. And the process of the traditional method of secondary fermentation in the bottle also matters a great deal in terms of the taste. Yeah, it's just rare to find a champagne, even a grower champagne that uses indigenous yeast for the secondary fermentation. True. I don't even think that's possible. I'm sure someone's trying it somewhere. (laughs) So then it depends on how you define indigenous yeast, right? So it could be yeast that they cultivated from their vineyards that they've then grown and created parts of that they can put into the bottle. They can't just put sugar in the bottle, close it up and expect it to just ferment, right? Sure, sure. I'm expecting that they're, when they're saying nothing added, that if it didn't come off the grape at the time of harvest, that they're not allowed to add it. But that's just me reading into the rules potentially or the lack thereof. And the next thing you know, we're going to have a a regulation on what counts as indigenous yeast. Right. There's so many different ways you can tackle that because a lot of times indigenous is really just yeast that's taken from the field, but then grown and cultivated inside the lab and the winery. Let's go to Burgundy for a second. So there are a lot of producers who pretty much follow these rules. Yet they're biodynamically farmed, they're minimal intervention. They don't even go through the certification of those things for their vineyards because they don't see the need to because their wines speak for themselves or they, or they have that cachet already. Do you think that a lot of wineries in Burgundy, which is a fairly high end, I mean, there's wines of all levels, of course, but do you think that people are going to adopt this process if they're already following this practices? Well, I think a lot of why they don't have the certification and they don't strictly follow the organic or biodynamic farming practices, let alone this natural wine method practice, is because it's a difficult growing area. It can be humid, warm, and cool in certain times. And that humidity has mold risk and they've got frost risk and other things where they sometimes need to have the ability to do different applications, which sometimes may be chemical in nature, that can allow them to survive. Right. So for the most part, dry farming is par for the course, but in breakout vintages, they are allowed to do irrigation and things like that. And that, like 2003. That's why they have this concept of loot raisonné, right? The reason path, I think that means. Because they're doing what they need to do, and they're trying to be as minimal interventionist as possible and get as high quality as possible. But they're not going to be unsustainable from an economic standpoint and say, well, I'm just going to let the whole crop go bad this year. Switching gears for a second, talking about importers. I think it's interesting, specifically being in the U.S., that you'll oftentimes see wines that are labeled as made with organic grapes and not necessarily organic wine because the U.S. labeling laws require for it to be labeled an organic wine that no sulfur was added. And that essentially is only one part of this in, in terms of there's two designations. One is you know zero sulfites added and one is up to 30 milligrams per liter. And 30 milligrams per liter is pretty low in the grand scheme of things. And one could argue that it's often needed in order to ensure that the end product that makes it from the producer to its destination is stable, maintains quality, and delivers on the value and the cost that it was largely meant to achieve. So I was wondering what your thoughts were on the thoughts of minimal sulfur for these wines and and, and lack thereof with this two different splits and labels and designations. I think stability is key. If you can't get a stable, consistent product into the store or 
exported, shipped across the world, that you're going to have a big problem with returns and bottle variation and consumers not being happy. The other thing I think is like as the wines get tested and come in, if they can't even use that designation on the label because there's up to 30 milligrams of added sulfur, then what's the point? You're talking about the U.S. here, but the U.S. happens to be the largest wine market in the world. So if you can't get your wines into the U.S. under this designation, then you have a big issue. And I don't know what the regulations are for China or for the U.K. or or others, but if it's only within the EU that this can be used, you're limiting the application of this designation. And it's not going to take off because it's not going to have as much value for these producers that are trying to sell their wines globally. And so in terms of retailers, so there's actually quite a few natural wine bars, but also natural wine retailers. One would question, what is the value to these boutique retailers who are already really versed in natural wine and already doing the sales, whether or not there is a designation? How do you think it helps or hinders them? I think that could be very confusing for their consumers. If you're in a natural wine store, let's say, and you're looking at the shelf and two of the wines over here say Vin Metal Natural, so natural wine, and the others don't say that. You're kind of like, wait, I'm in a natural wine store. How come some of the wines say natural wine and some of the wines don't? It starts to bring into question like what's going on here, what's the difference and just generates some conversation, which could be an opportunity for the retailers to say, oh, well, you know, this, this for this reason. And especially if the Vin Meto Nature wines are more expensive, they could try to upsell there. But it does bring into question like, so what is going on with these others? And it may bring into a conversation or a need for this very detailed knowledge of every single wine on the shelf in terms of how exactly is it made? Is there any types of adjustments or anything going on in the wine that if you have a big selection of wines, may be very hard for any individual person working in that store to remember? Yeah, it definitely seems like it was something that if you were not just a natural wine shop and you were a regular boutique wine shop or focused on high-end wines or hard-to-get wines, but not just exclusively natural wines, it seems like this could be a benefit to consumers if they wanted to go to the natural wine section and it was that labeling was clear and iconic to consumers and they knew what to look for. And it was, you know, always put in the same location and, you know, had the same insignia, like that could definitely help people make the choices they want to have. And I think that also, since we're talking about retailers, that segues into consumers and they're related in terms of, will the consumer pay more if this is on their bottle? I personally care first and foremost, if the wine tastes good, And I'm always happy. And I don't really want to smell wine and be like, "Mm, this is a natural wine. And I think that's part of the issue I have with the natural wine as a designation at large. Like I want to make sure that like natural is important after it being good and stable in a clean wine and a sound wine. And so as a consumer, I'm not willing to pay more. Like I'm all about knowing that my, even from groceries, that my fruits are sustainably farmed or my cows are sustainably farmed. Like I want to be a good global citizen, but I also want to make sure that the product I'm getting is is quality as well. And so I think that's an interesting aspect, like how do people equate that when they think about knowing where their products come from? Well, like organic foods, organic wines, there have been some studies done where people will pay more. I think they say something like $3 more a bottle. And when you think about 
wine in the global context or even the domestic context, but all wine, so including two buck chuck to Screaming Eagle, the average bottle of wine sold is still only around $8 a bottle. So $3, that's a lot. That's, you know, from eight to 11, that's what, almost a third or 30% more in terms of price premium that people might be willing to pay. But when you're thinking about higher end wines, if they're 20, 30, 40, let alone 100 plus, $3 is nothing and and makes no difference. So I think people may be willing to pay more, but as you get to the higher end categories of wine, people are, like you're saying, and like you are, more concerned about the quality of the wine and the taste of the wine and making sure that's good. And I think there's a natural assumption that when you're paying $100 a bottle, it is a quote unquote natural wine in the sense that it's a naturally made product. It's grapes and yeast, basically. And, you know, there might be other things that are done to the processing of the wine, but it's still just basically a a natural product and it's made from grapes effectively. And so people just assume that. I definitely think there are consumers that will care about how their product is farmed and made and produced and know that it's pure and nothing's added. And I think that's a great intent. And I think one would hope that all wine is made that way, but that's not always the case. There's also the consumers that are vegans. You know, there are different fining agents that are used in the winemaking process that will sometimes prevent your wine from being labeled as a vegan product, even though to your point, it's largely just yeast and grapes. And so whether that's egg white finding or isinglass, which is a fish bladder for filtering, that's what's preventing those wines from being vegan. I don't think the average person understands what those products really mean and what they impart on the wine. That's where ingredient labeling, there's been sometimes a push for ingredient labeling on wine and people saying, oh, well, you know, there's Isinglass or there's egg whites added to the wine. Therefore, it's not vegan. It's like, well, they're not really added per se. I mean, they are. They are put into the wine, which then they filter through and basically take out. Really, it's called a process called fining. They take out different naturally occurring things in the wine to make them clear or other things. But then they're basically filtered out or racked off and they're no longer in the wine. You might have a very trace amount, like a one in million or billion parts type of concentration, but they're effectively not in the wine anymore. So they're more of a processing aid versus an ingredient. It's not like in a food where it's an ingredient and it's something that stays in the wine. You know, an equivalent might be to say, like, I've pasteurized the milk or heated something, and that's a processing aid, but it wasn't necessarily added to the wine. Yeah, I mean, well, flash pasteurization is not allowed either, so there's going to be zero kosher natural wines. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. Okay, so let's kind of wrap this up in terms of our takeaways. How do we know if this designation is successful and effective? It's going to be effective if there's going to be more producers, more regions, and even more countries within and outside the EU adopting this designation and those rules. That will mean it's just growing. So if it's growing, it must be working. So that more specifically, because there's lots of certifications out there for people, and a lot of people are already following this practice. So for me, it will truly be successful if the people who are already following these principles thinks that applying for this designation and putting it on their bottles adds value to them and their consumers, then that's a sign of success. And if that slowly grows, there becomes a clear following. You know, one would hope that it also reduce the supposed fake natural wines that are leveraging essentially the movement of natural wine, but without 
following all the practices because it wasn't regulated up until then. And consumers, to your point, will be more willing to buy the wines and pay more for the wines because following these designations, getting the testing and the processes to ensure that they're really following those designations to put the labeling on the bottle means that it'll cost more to make the wine. And so consumers will need to be willing to pay more for that. It's definitely going to be interesting to watch. But I want to thank everybody who listened to this episode for joining us. And you'll see us soon. Next time. Take care. And don't forget, you can become a patron of X Chateau by visiting patreon.com slash X Chateau if you'd like to support us to continue delivering content that the wine industry needs. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.